Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Matt Alexander, founder and CEO of Neighborhood Goods. Neighborhood Goods is a new type of department store featuring an ever-changing landscape of the world's most thoughtful, progressive, and exciting brands. This was actually a live podcast episode that we did in Dallas a few weeks ago. It was really great meeting Matt in person. I really appreciate him with his time, considering that he was just that week opening a new neighborhood goods department store in Newport Beach. So I'm sure it was pretty hectic. So really, really appreciate him squeezing us in and him being available for, uh, for this interview. This is a lot of fun. Really want to thank RevTech Ventures for hosting us. Um, it was really great seeing everyone that came out. Thanks again for coming if you're at, at, at our event in Dallas. Without further ado, here's Matt. Thank you all very, very much, especially our our moderator, Lindsay, who's also our co-host. She's fantastic. We're bringing up Mike to the stage. Mike Gelb is, as I said earlier, the founder of the Consumer VC podcast. Um, it's a pretty good podcast. I was listening to it during COVID and I called him up. We got to talking and all of a sudden I realized we were kind of thinking about the same thing. Let's actually have a real system to teach people about CPG that doesn't exist online. So great job, Greg. Thank you so much. Um, ultimately we met online during COVID and we started the consumer VC summit. This was back in 2020. Nobody knew anything. They could actually handle taking a three day zoom call. Can you imagine doing a 30 minute zoom call now? No. So those days are long gone, but which is why we do it live. And the ultimate goal, as I said earlier, is to connect with each other, build the fabric of this community, not just here in Dallas, but all over Texas and really all over the Southwest. There's an enormous amount of money, capital, power, and human ideology that makes so much sense for the CPG business. I love being in it. And uh, with that, I'm going to give you Mike Gelb. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, as Mark said, like we started doing virtual summits in 2020. I'm really excited because I actually tried to get Matt to speak at one of our virtual summits back in the day. But I think we have like a conflict or something on the time. And so this is way better. Really excited to do this in person. And also in Dallas this is our first event that we've done in Dallas. So we're looking forward to it. And um, also really want to thank Matt for being here of all days because you're launching location number four. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Th this week in, um, in Newport Beach, right? In Newport Beach. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure things are super just launching and everything like that. So, so thanks so much for, for being here. Well, hey, no worries. I mean, nothing's ever particularly calm. So, you know, no better time than present. So in case no one's been, what is Neighborhood Goods and what is a little bit of like, of like the founding story of it? Yeah, so we describe Neighborhood Goods as being a new type of department store of sorts. So rather than, you know, featuring a, you know, fairly static sort of a seasonal landscape of product on racks like you would find in a traditional department store in like a 100,000 square foot space in a traditional department store, our spaces are about 10,000 feet. They change constantly. So we're launching anywhere from three to 10 brands each Thursday. Those brands rotate in and out. We're capturing a huge amount of data. So for some of those brands, it's not just about um, selling product to you. It's about how they engage with you, how they acquire you as a customer, how they 
uh, do product sampling, all sorts of different bits and pieces. So from a consumer perspective, it presents as a relatively traditional sort of boutique retail experience where you have most different product categories represented. Uh, we have our own restaurants in the space. It's our staff, our design. But beyond that, it's brands that are traditionally sort of known to be direct consumer, digitally native brands that have never otherwise been in physical retail before. And they're there for radically different amounts of time. And so in terms of how we started it, we sort of all had the same recognition that uh, for a lot of these direct consumer brands that were coming up sort of from 2010 onward, customer acquisition costs were rising rapidly and it was becoming really difficult to build a purely sustainable and profitable business that was online only. And you needed to start thinking about wholesale. You need to start thinking about all sorts of different considerations, but a really critical one is physical retail, which had sort of been written off as sort of this irrelevant sort of dying medium. But really the customers you can acquire and pick up through a physical channel can have five times the lifetime value of the digital counterparts. And so if you can get into physical in the right way and tell that story, not only can it be a lot less expensive than an ad campaign, but it can also yield a much more efficient, much more useful customer very inexpensively. And so we set out to try to create a platform that would allow for that in one cohesive format. Because I think a lot of people were thinking about, oh, we'll just white box the space and turn it into a grid and put a bunch of these brands in and, and that would be great. But I think that misses some of the sort of artistry of retail as it's sort of come to be over the past hundred years or so. And and so we tried to sort of have something that would be very traditional from a front end perspective, easy to understand, but that would just run on a much more progressive back end. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense, um, especially when you started, when it comes to, you know, rising CACs and it'd be really hard to scale when it comes to D2C, just with your uh, customer acquisition costs. And it makes sense to kind of, as maybe companies are thinking about, okay, what does retail look like maybe earlier than we did? But of course, then of course, COVID happens. And I'd imagine that's a whole wrench into, into the system. How did you kind of go throughout COVID, because it makes sense, again, like that CACs have been rising over the past few years. And then, of course, it seems like brands really had, I mean, had to really shift, go all D to C, all online, because retail, you weren't able to do retail in a, in a lot of ways. So how did you, how you have to adjust through COVID? So many different ways. I mean, uh, we had, we launched our first location here, just, just north of Dallas in November 2018. And we opened in New York in December 2019. And then we opened in Austin on March 13th, 2020. And then I closed all those stores on March 14th, 2020. And so we, earlier that week or the week before, we had been picked up Fast Company, top 10 most innovative retail. We were winning all these awards. We had just raised our Series A. We were on this real tear. And suddenly I was doing furloughs and layoffs. And it was brutal, uh, ridiculously difficult. And so the, the way our model works is rather than buying at wholesale, brands tend to pay to be in the store and then we take the product on consignment. So first thing we did was we stopped charging brands fees because we were closed. And we were just sort of worried what retention was going to look like. And we were closed in Texas for 90 days and New York for 130. And we didn't lose any brands. The team came back. And in the intervening time, I redeveloped and rewrote our website myself. We had built this sort of unnecessarily complex uh, front end that was running through an overly complex mechanism on Shopify. Uh, and Shopify at the time uh, was rolling out really rapid feature releases for buy online pickup in store and much more native, improved functionality. 
So I did redid our whole site in that sort of April period. I did it inside of like a two week period and we relaunched it and digital that year grew. It was like a thousand percent year over year. We turned our kitchens into ghost kitchens as well. And so we started to work with, there were a lot of these pop-up restaurant concepts coming up. So Sandoichi, Email Pies, a few of these others. And we started letting them do activations and pop-ups out of our restaurants, um, even while we were closed. And so we were able to sort of build that excitement. And then once we reopened, we launched uh, not-for-profit to give free space to brands that have been hard hit by the pandemic. Um, and so we decided we would run that for the same amount of time as we were closed. So we ended up running it for three or four months or thereabouts. And a lot of those brands did so well that they remain in our ecosystem today. And, you know, some of those brands that launched in Austin, we have brands like, you know, Aesop for argument's sake, are sort of not necessarily a direct consumer digitally native brand, but they were meant to be with us for, I think, six months or thereabouts. But, you know, they're still with us, you know, three years and change later. And so we've ended up sort of through the pandemic, I think, we had this really formative moment where we had to sort of slow down. I think we were all really high on, you know, a lot of really positive sort of attention. There was a huge amount of brands applying to work with us. A lot of investors reaching out just constantly and everything was really exciting. And then suddenly we just had to sort of slow way down. And a lot of our investors based in Europe and they were calling and basically saying, you should just close for a year and, and hope for the best and come back. Just sit on the cash and come back in a year. And we really sort of had this sort of moment that forced us to sort of really, I think, sort of self-identify our own value system. Who did we want to be when we grew up? How did we want to sort of operate? Um, how would we handle a moment like that? And so I don't think we did everything perfectly, but we launched all sorts of initiatives right in that period. We started giving equity to all store employees. We started creating, we created an initiative called Summer Mondays where, you know, a lot of white collar companies give uh, Summer Fridays uh, for corporate employees. We started doing summer Mondays where we do it for everyone inclusive of our stores so they can have every other Monday off. And we came up with a way of scheduling it so that we could sort of avoid disrupting the business overly. And we've run along from there. And so it's not been without challenges. There's been so many and there continue to be so many in this environment, anything from supply chain to capital and otherwise. Um, but we made our way through. And so, you know, I think a really formative time, a difficult time to run restaurants and physical retail as your primary revenue but i think we learned a lot and have grown up a lot as a result of it and i think it built a lot of resilience into us for better or worse no i i really appreciate you just like walking us through all the difficulties that you had to face and also like ways you had to pivot as well by using you know your storefronts to actually help brands when it comes to fulfillment or just whatever you could be doing for the brands that are working with you and still provide value, still provide a service. I remember that you mentioned, and we, we kind of all know that, you know, Dallas was like the first location. I know that you went to SMU. You're, you know, you've you've been in Dallas for a long period. Why was Dallas the first like location to start? What makes Dallas to you special? Was it just that you knew the area very, very well and like let's launch here? Or did you also like consider other locations? Yeah, so I co-founded the business with a really prominent guy in the commercial real estate space called Mark Masinta. He had been approaching the similar idea from his own world in the real estate space where he was seeing a lot of these brands taking off and being really successful and physical, but recognized how difficult it was to lease space, go through that process. And so he had this perspective that there was this opportunity to create a vehicle for that. And I had arrived at a similar conclusion myself, and we sort of teamed up to run along there and Mark, in his sort of more full-time day-to-day -day capacity, was working on a 
multi-billion dollar mixed-use development here in the suburbs called Legacy West. If you look at Dallas from a broad perspective, the whole Metroplex, it tends to be in the top five markets or at worst top 10 for most e-commerce brands, but there's very low representation for most of those brands here. So when they do eventually open a store here or otherwise, they tend to do extraordinarily well. You know, I've lived in Dallas for 16 years or thereabouts, and I love it, uh, but it doesn't have many geographically redemptive qualities, right? It's just sort of flat and it's hot and you, there's like a few man-made lakes and not much else. And so you you have a lot of people here that are sort of in banking, energy, and otherwise there's a lot of disposable income and people like to go shopping. They like to go eating. There, there, there was an article in the New York Times uh, yesterday even uh, referring to Dallas as the new Dubai, where they're bringing so many luxury restaurant experiences here because it's a thing to do and there's the disposable income, right? And so people, you know, there's a reason why Neiman's is here and all these other great sort of retail companies. And so for us, it was about articulating this side of the business, which was helping work with all of these brands that were very focused on the coasts and showing them that there was real meaningful business and growth to be found in between. And so Plano, Texas isn't the sort of first place that springs to mind for someone to go launch their first physical retail, but it was first physical retail for all sorts of big brands like Hims and, and you know, all sorts of others that are now anything from publicly traded to have dozens of their own stores and otherwise. And that was by virtue of, you know, running that experiment with us. And so I think, you know, Dallas is a strong market. It's also a great entrepreneurial market. And so for us, we always entertain different markets. We didn't know exactly where we were going to go next. We've always had the same list of essentially like 20 cities that make perfect sense for us. But Dallas is a robust and good place for business. And so why not start here and, and do something a little bit different than would otherwise be expected? And and I think that really served us favorably and sort of set us a little bit apart from the pack where we were trying to educate people that you don't just have to go open a pop-up in Soho, that you can go do something elsewhere and you can find, you know, a potentially more useful long-term customer than you would have otherwise expected. That makes a lot of sense, just all of the kind of characteristics that you say when it comes to Dallas. And also why it could be like a great testing ground too, if you're like a coastal brand, how Dallas could be like a first spot to really see if your product maybe could work between the coast, for example. How do you think as well, can we talk a little bit about, about the, the, the monetization, how you think about the actual partnering with brands? I know it's obviously tr um, not traditional the department store where you, you know, the, the wholesale model and you ordering POs and what have you. you talk a little bit about, about how you think about partnering with brands. And it also seems like a little bit complex because you're constantly partnering with new and new brands and kind of onboarding brands and talk a little bit about like the duration when it comes to like the minimum duration that you have with brands. Yeah. So the, the idea was to create something where we would have a different mix of brands and products on a per location basis. You want to have a feeling of relevance above all else. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that's been lost in retail, right? Is that sense that you're going into something that's relevant to you and where you live and your general lifestyle. And so we wanted to have this focus on, even if we're working with the same brand across multiple locations, they might manifest quite differently in one location versus the next to suit those goals differently. And they may have different goals from one market to the next where they may have complete saturation in New York and it's really more about retention of a customer versus in Plano, it might be introduction to a whole swath of new customers. That's exactly what we did with Dollar Shave Club. We were their first physical retail and they had a huge sort of expression to introduce themselves to the customer here. Whereas in New York, they were just in a few shelves in a mixed category section. Uh, we've done the same thing with all sorts of brands. 
the thesis was to bring brands in for three to six months, never more than 12. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, we've had brands that have been with us for years. Um, the average duration in 2022 was about 12 months. And we've seen that increasing. I think it was nine months the year before. And so the average is slowly climbing upward. I think some of that is uh, them rotating into different locations. We keep the product mix fresh. It's not just about having a static assortment and otherwise. And so it is complicated and it does have all sorts of complexity to how you think about it. But really it comes down to a fairly simple system. We tier our relationships with brands. So at the most basic, you're just in the space selling products. At the higher end, it could be anything. It could be all sorts of different creative mechanisms through which you want to introduce yourself to the customer, right? So we just did a bunch of activations with Rivian, for example, in the electric car space. So one of the things we get to do is we are a loophole to exclusives and leases. So in Plano, we're right next door to Tesla and Lucid. And so if you're an electric car company like Rivian, there's, there's literally no way for you to show up in that development and get in front of those customers. But with us, because it would be less than X percentage of our sales, of our square, put square footage or otherwise, it allows for a loophole where you can come in and do something interesting there. So in Austin, we have Aesop right next door to us. We have Lulabo has a store. Thus, Aesop couldn't open there even if they wanted to, but they can with us, right? And so we sort of offer this interesting mechanism to bring brands into areas where we can sort of test things. It's useful for the landlord because they want to understand how the competition may work. And for us, it's useful to understand a better sense of what that uh, category is going to do in a general area like that. But we work on it from all sorts of different objectives where they want to come in and Rivian, they don't really care about selling cars. It's more about retaining people on their wait list, right? And so they are much more focused on test drives and giving people free drinks and food and otherwise from the restaurants. Whereas a brand like Aesop just wants to sell a lot more it's distinct from one brand to the next, and it is complicated, but there is an underlying system that allows for us to run it in a fairly simple way that operates in something that isn't massively dissimilar from wholesale. But, you know, we we filter back a huge amount of data as well, anything from demographics to traffic and otherwise. And so it's definitely more complicated, but it's also something where you end up with a much richer, more dynamic relationship that I could think suits the customer a lot more and also suits certainly for a lot of these modern brands a lot more as well. Do you also think about when it comes to your criteria in terms of what what would work in neighborhood goods? Do you also think, okay, we have to have a mix maybe of like established brands and emerging brands and kind of what does that actually look like? Yeah. So when we launched, the the plan was for Plano, Plano's 13 and a half thousand square feet. We thought we were going to have 15 brands at most in that space. Uh, today, it hovers between 100 and 150 brands at any given time. And so when we launched, it had 26. And so it's still pretty, pretty low number with larger sort of square footage per brand. We had assumed it was going to be everyone taking about a thousand square feet, 500 to a thousand. And we would have the restaurant and it would rotate every six months or so. And you would have one brand representing one category, essentially. And the assumption was that of those 15 brands, you'd have five that would be sort of big names, big sort of national high growth brands that would sort of subsidize probably four or five younger brands at the opposite end of the spectrum. And for the 10 or so in between, you would have, you know, five to 10 in between, you would have some of these more sort of growth oriented concepts. So you'd have a balance of local, high growth, big names. And in terms of the economics, you're then basically allowing for those really young, more local brands to get a free pathway into a space like that to get a platform and test. 
and you're allowing for those larger brands to do something more meaningful. I think that general ratio has proven to be accurate. It's just a hell of a lot more brands in the space than we would have otherwise anticipated. So these days, if you have 150 brands, you're going to have potentially dozens that you would categorize as these high growth venture backed concepts, as well as potentially dozens of really local concepts. We also have sub initiatives around black owned brands and otherwise. And so there's all sorts of different aspects to it. Can you talk a little bit about what the definition of success could be like for a brand? I know you kind of alluded to it in that it could be sales, but it could also be like uh, be an activation. Maybe within like an like an activation, what how you also when you talk to brands and and what the brands are looking for, what actually is success when it comes to like an activation per se? Yeah, so like the Rivian example for them, it's really about how do you get people to come and show up and sort of uh, get excited, walk away with a positive impression, and otherwise. Whereas for an apparel brand, it might be more just about selling product, right? And, you know, generating a good solid return. And so for those sorts of brands, we have a really robust ROI. It's probably more significant than what they would see from most other brands, better margin. We work in the CPG space and we allow for them to integrate into our restaurants and otherwise. And so we get really creative there as well. And then, you know, you have brands that may look at it more from a marketing perspective, in which case, if you're looking at it from uh, CAC sort of perspective, and you're looking at the volume of traffic you get versus the conversion rate. And otherwise, you're looking at a conversion rate that's or a, a customer acquisition cost that's extraordinarily inexpensive. You're talking about you know few bucks per customer sort of thing. And so it really depends. You know, some brands are coming to us; they really want to understand how to train people, how to find leases, what real estate's going to be right for them, what retail's going to be right for them. Others are trying to learn the discipline of what it looks like to do wholesale. Um, others just want to sell a lot of product. We can suit all of those goals. And then for a lot of them, it's it's kind of all of them rolled into one. And so a lot of different pieces to it, but uh, it sort of depends on the goals of the brand. I think to add like a further piece to it that I'd love to know is dealing with personalization when it comes to different locations. Um, just to add like another wrinkle into all this as well. How do you think about like what Dallas might be different to in Austin or New York or, you know, congratulations on on on, on Newport Beach coming soon? How do you think about what brands maybe work geographically in those different areas? Yeah, so there's probably, you know, five different types of real estate we would do. The sort of major metropolitan like we have in New York, uh, the sort of up and coming like we have in Austin, the sort of suburban market like we have in Plano, soon to be Newport. Then you have malls, which we haven't done. And then you have sort of international and or seasonal, which we also haven't done. Um, if you map the objectives of those brands against those sort of uh, different location types, you find a world in which uh, major metropolitan and up-and-coming markets like in Austin are right at the top, where you're getting to really influential customers, raw traffic, a lot of sales up front, and then you're adding to that this different sort of component of how do you get to potentially lower traffic locations in the suburbs, but higher spending uh, customers that are probably earlier in their life cycle and may have less built-in awareness of your brand than you would otherwise. And so we like to find a balance of finding suburban mixed with more urban and sort of up and coming, where you can sort of tick tock between that customer type where you're getting uh, these people that would otherwise be quite hard to advertise towards and to secure in the suburbs. Um, and you're also getting in front of this highly sought after customer in a market like Austin. And so we really focus on it from that perspective. And then when you think about that from a brand perspective and you start thinking about where you're gonna go, like New York with us, that space gets tens of thousands of people a week, right? And so 
you're not going to be able to have a really long in-depth activation experience in that space because it's just raw traffic passing through. Whereas in Austin or Plano, you can probably have more of a moment. And so it's about how you coach brands through what they're trying to accomplish. So a lot will come to us and say, well, we just want to do this thing in New York because it's New York. But realistically, they may do better if they were in Austin, for argument's sake. So it's just about knowing that and understanding the general dimensions of it all. I appreciate you mentioning the different types of locations that you think about as well, where um, that market is like in New York, very, very busy ra- rather than like maybe a sub- uh, suburb and then thinking about as well. Um, okay. Could this format also work in a mall too? What is, I know that you're, you know, opening uh, Newport, but what, how many maybe destinations do you think that the neighborhood goods model could actually work in? And how do you think about retail expansion in the future in terms of number of stores you want to maybe introduce on, on a uh, per annual basis? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think we'll probably head in a similar direction to what you see from a lot of sort of higher end department stores that have 30 to 40 locations in the country that have a really sort of particular customer where they have a really particular focus. I think for us, we could easily open, like we have our location in Plano, we could definitely also have a location in Dallas proper. And so I think the same holds true for California where we're opening in Newport, we could definitely also have a location in LA, we have a location in New York, we could definitely also have a location in Brooklyn. And so I think for us, it's about finding the metropolitan hub and then having more of a suburban or adjacent satellite that can support it with a different customer type. So if you go down that sort of rabbit hole, you could easily end up with a few in each state, but it's obviously not quite that simple. So you have to really focus on you know, the artistic side of it, not just the scientific side, because, you know, you can look at it from just generating raw sales and opening more locations and raising additional capital and having all this growth. But you also want to maintain something that feels special and is accretive for brands and is unique and otherwise. So you don't want to get over your skis on that front. So I think for us, it's about opening in the right locations that continue to feel brand right and elevating for everyone involved. I think international is a huge opportunity where a lot of brands in the US are trying to think about international, but it's really difficult. And we have a lot of great strategic investors in that regard that can help. And then I think it's also for us about tangential opportunities, whether it's acquiring brands or doing other various sort of different strategic and creative deals that can help augment what we do as an ecosystem beyond just the core stores. And so in the immediate, we're opening three this year. So we'll double our store count. And then we'll probably head towards doing three to five next year or thereabouts. And we'll probably start to look pretty seriously at putting a flag in the ground in one or two international markets sooner rather than later. How do you think about maybe like your target customer, the different kind of qualities for that and how that maybe changes in terms of how many like like a suburban storefront to maybe a a mall storefront? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's like there's obviously the differences between someone shopping in Newport versus someone shopping in New York. But ultimately, I think the unifying characteristic is going to be a degree of curiosity, right? Like ultimately we're a great place for discovery. I've said this a million times, but if I'm in New York and I spill coffee on my shirt, I know I can go to Nordstrom for argument's sake to buy that shirt. I otherwise don't really have a reason to go to Nordstrom. It's not really, it's not a slight against it. It's just more of a utility for me in that regard. Whereas what we play the role of is something more interesting and it has more magnetism to it because it's different in each market there's different restaurants in each space we host four to five events per week brands are launching constantly so you have reason to go the other side of that coin though right is that i never would think to go to neighborhood goods straight away to go buy that shirt if i need to replace it so for us it's very much how we find the balance between 
the discovery and utility of the customer and, and what they're looking for. But at the end of the day, customers come in usually because they're a big fan of a brand that we just launched that they've never otherwise seen in person. They come in, they have a great experience, and then they just keep coming back and they start consuming from the other brands and otherwise. And so we've built something that's really sticky. You look at it and we would tell you the same as everyone else that we go after a customer that's sort of, you know, age 26 to 42, probably more female than male and all the other obvious characteristics. But if you go visit our stores, you would see that the demographics are really broad and you see young kids coming in and hanging out. You see older couples coming in and having a coffee. It, it's all over the map and we've done anything from luxury down to really inexpensive kids clothing and otherwise. And so, you know, it, it's not pigeonholed into one category or another. And if anything, we've been able to be really playful. We did an activation last year with a golf brand based here in town called Good Good Golf. Mm. Um, they have a huge YouTube following and uh, they've been really interested in doing something with us for a minute. And it just hadn't been something that really captured my imagination. And we eventually did it and we did it as a seven day activation where they were going to come and launch their first ever putter. We didn't really know what to expect, but we started noticing people lining up outside the store sort of midway through the Friday and the activation launched on the Saturday. And it was something outrageous, like two and a half thousand people lined up overnight and uh, queued up outside the store. And they, they, they sold out within a couple of hours and like people had flown in or driven in from all over the country, kids, uh, older people that were just huge fans of these guys. And so what was meant to be a seven day activation was essentially there for six hours. And so you never know. And so it, I don't think of us as a golf store, but maybe we should be, I, I, you know, I don't know, but like, but that's kind of the fun of it is that, you know, we haven't, we, we have a sort of philosophy of why not, you know, and there's often really good reasons why not. But if you can come at it from more of a playful perspective, you find some fun things. When you think through an activation, like just for that example, how do you also think about the overall promotion for the activation? Is it typically on the brand to kind of promote and also to kind of drive people to come in stores? Or what is like Neighborhood Goods doing on that, on, on, on those lines as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think uh, this is one of the things we really had to educate brands around in the early days was that they have their thousand true fans, essentially, right? They have to bring them to bear to make it a good reciprocal relationship. It's not quite wholesale, right? Where you just sort of hand the product off. It's not quite your own store where you're doing everything yourself. It's sort of in between, right? And so I remember um, we had a great men's clothing brand that launched with us without naming names in Plano back in 2018. They were meant to be with us for three months and I think they were with us for just over a year. And they came in and they were consistently in the top 10 brands, always did just fine, but never ever acknowledged they were open with us. Never sent an email, never posted on Instagram, nothing. And they had a store list on their website, never listed anything. About six months in, they sent one email to customers within a 25 mile radius of the store and put us on their store list on their website. And from then on, without doing anything else, they were consistently number one and number two in terms of sales through the remainder of their time with us. And so that's become kind of an aspect of the playbook where you don't need to be doing paid media or otherwise and putting in massive amount of effort. But if you treat it as a first class citizen and a distinct sales channel, it will reciprocate. Um, and so we have a very engaged audience. You know, we have a large, you know, email list and otherwise just like everyone else. But the open rates for us is upwards of 70, 80 percent. And it's a really high level of engagement. We have these regular events that are extremely well attended, anything from concerts with SoFar Sounds to product launches and otherwise. Um, and so we'll bring traffic. And then if you're at the entrance to Chelsea Market in New York, you're also just getting a huge amount of traffic by default. And so 
there's not much issue with bringing the traffic, but getting the right customer and otherwise, we do want to make sure that it's a partnership, right? Because we want people to be excited to come in and see the these products that they may have bought online, but never otherwise seen in person or they've seen on Instagram, whatever it is. And so we want to make sure that there's the conversation there and the teamwork, but it's not sort of a requirement. You can be successful without that. Um, I think the Google Golf guys, they posted once or twice on Instagram and that was it. And just all these people showed up, right? And we certainly don't have the golf audience to to make that a home run for them, but like it was. And so it depends on the partnership, but we certainly have a big audience and, and we bring that to bear, but it it has to be collaborative. That's crazy that like one email can drive, can actually just shoot a brand up to like uh, number one. That's that's pretty fascinating. Um, speaking of, uh, of sales channels, how do you also think about your e-commerce channel in relationship to your, I know we talk about in stores and that's kind of like the main event, but how do you also think about like the e-commerce channel as well and how if are brands are receptive to coming on your e-commerce channel or what have you? Yeah, I mean, brands were so against it when we first launched. I mean, launching with us in general was a big leap of faith, right? Because we're the point of sale, it's our staff and otherwise. And so for a lot of these younger brands that we were bringing at the time, it was their first physical retail and we were asking them to take a bet on us. And I think when we launched, it was like, we had all the products online, but you couldn't necessarily shop all of it. It was more about understanding what was available in store, which is important. But within a few weeks, all the brands were opting into being online and since then, you know, we don't drive it as a major sort of component of our business. We're not running huge media campaigns or otherwise. It's there and it it's growing year over year and it drives meaningful business. But we're not looking to cannibalize anyone else's uh, performance online. You know, some of the larger department stores in the space, they have a policy of if you are in their stores, they will advertise against you on your own search terms, which is obviously really difficult for a lot of these brands. And so we don't want to fall into that trap. So digital for me... I think we'll continue to grow. We'll continue to put money and time and effort into it. And we see it as important. But for me right now, I mostly think of it as an informational channel that enables people to come in and visit. They want to understand when events are, what products are in stock, if they can come in and buy online, pick up in store, order for same same day delivery and otherwise. And so that's the focus. We're not trying to get, we're not trying to turn the store into, the digital store into the whole business. But if it can be, store sized and operate just as a component of the broader ecosystem, I think that's very much the objective for us. Ever have brands that maybe graduate from neighborhood goods, launch their own source, um, or maybe get into other retail and then come back to you all that actually want to do like more campaigns? Yeah, it happens all the time. We have uh, seasonal brands that we've worked with for years, like Kinfield, you know, they make an amazing uh Mosquito repellent, it makes sense for them to be with us in the spring and summer. Doesn't make sense for them to be with us over the holiday period. Um, so we've been working with them pretty much probably from 2019, summer of 2019 onward. We have brands like uh, The Curated and Peace on Lee, which are big in the sort of uh, cashmere space and otherwise, which we bring in for the winter. Brands like The Arrivals, where we've done a lot of exclusives and collaborations, similar thing where it's very much a technical outerwear brand. And so uh, we work with those brands, we bring them back. And then more broadly, yeah, we see brands that sort of graduate up to opening their own stores or getting more into wholesale or sort of doing more of their own pop-ups. And and from our and my perspective, I think that's that's a great endorsement, right? Like that's what we want to see happen. We want to see brands graduate, build more infrastructure, more of an ecosystem of their own. And if we can be a component of that story, I'm very proud of that. And so I think of it sort of, you know, 
for those that sort of generation of tech companies that were coming up that had sort of Y Combinator in the footer of their website as very much the sort of badge of honor that they went through something at a time that was really formative for them. You know, I'd love to sort of ultimately be in that sort of place where we helped brands get off the ground. But equally, you know, we work with all these big, very well-established brands now that want to sort of do something different and tell a more complete story and have more of an intimate relationship with the customer. And so we play a lot of different roles, but for us, you know, there's never going to be just one department store concept. And so we play in an industry that is always going to be uh, a bigger conversation than just us. And that is what I think makes it exciting. You know, the reason we are afforded the opportunity and latitude to exist is because a lot of larger retailers became really complacent 20 years ago. And we came along with sort of new ideas and we could easily fall victim to the same problem. And so it's about how we stay really nimble and continue to push ourselves to do something different. And how to just remain to be creative with the brands in terms of what they're actually trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I think just not taking ourselves too seriously, right? Like the objectives of, like we, we hear from more brands today than we did in that sort of boom period in 2018, 2019, just because brands, it's a hard market right now and brands need distribution channels. They need to diversify their sales channels. And so something like us is a really, inoffensive brand right easy way of doing it and so we have to take that really seriously it's a fragile thing and that sort of lifeblood and pipeline is is tough to maintain and you know for us and everyone else in this market it's, it's a crazy difficult time and so how do we do something that has longevity to it and longevity doesn't come from just doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that nothing else changes around us like we have to remain really smart and nimble so we'll see well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. This is thank awesome. You, yeah. Thank you so Appreciate much. It. Thanks, thank everyone, you. for coming out. This has been great. Thank you so much. This is that was a lot of fun. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Matt. Matt, thanks again for your time. For everyone that came out in Dallas, thanks for coming. It was really great hanging out and seeing everyone. If you're enjoying the show, highly recommend subscribing to the newsletter at the Consumer VC, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Thanks for listening. Bye.